Welcome to the Euro Intelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Today, we would like to talk about, obviously, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but what interests us in particular this week is the whole sort of ruble, euro, dollar pricing debate, which is interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, In the end, it might not matter much because in the end, it might, might just be a lot of fuss about about nothing but it it is a good story about how how russia can evade sanctions and yet maintain income dollar and euro income for its gas what putin demands is essentially a way of being able to use the dollars and euros that he's getting. The German government is saying, you know, we, we pay him in euros and in, in dollars. A few countries are priced in dollars, but we pay mostly in euros. Uh, but he can't use the euros because, you know, all the euro accounts are sanctioned. That is actually not true. We've known that Russia has been using those euros. The way this works is you German company pays Russia in euros, and this goes to a, a Gazprom account, usually a Gazprom bank, a euro account. And then what Gazprom does is it takes the money, gives it to the Russian central bank, or it could exchange the, the, the euros on the market for ruble. But that didn't happen. What, it, what they did is they gave the money to the Russian central bank, which itself has accounts at Gazprom banks and other non, non-sanctioned banks. And it can then conduct the exchange rate operation. It then has the, the euros, which then get credit to, a, to an account of a non-sanctioned bank. And Gazprom uh, would then get the rubles, which the central bank can simply print. Um, so we're basically we are in a situation where the money that we that Europe sends to Russia, which is about seven, eight hundred million euros a day, can be used by Russia effectively because of very ordinary banking transactions. Now, Putin is demanding, this is this is really what puzzled us. Why? I mean, it's working. If we've seen it working, the ruble has stabilized quite nicely. They found a way basically around that part of the sanctions. So the question is now, uh, why did he do this in the first place? Because there isn't so, so much for a need for him. By asking the Europeans to pay in rubles, what he's essentially doing is getting them to evade the sanctions. If a German company were to have pay them in rubles, then the German company would have to buy rubles on the market from the Russian central bank. And that's obviously not something it can do. So the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, and Mario Draghi, the Italian prime minister, they said very clearly, we're not going to pay in rubles. And Putin talked to them a couple of days ago, he had a long telephone conversation, Draghi was just listening to him. And don't think he understood much what Putin was saying. It's not so much that Draghi doesn't understand finance. I think it's just the way that Putin tries to fi- explain finance to to Draghi might have just you know led to a degree of puzzlement. Um, when you know I think of a situation where Putin tries to explain the you know the nature of a swap contract to you, but it's been there's been something like that has gone on or is going on is that there is a swap a payment swap between a Europe cash flow and, and a Russian cash flow. So we are paying in euros and they get their money in rubles, which is perfectly possible. This is what swaps do. They swap to to, to cash flows. And uh, it, the question is that at what level legally does that swap take place? Does the swap take place between the two accounts of Gazprom, if it's, a, it's an internal Russian thing, or is this the, the companies? 
the clients, the customers account uh, at Gazprom Bank, because these kind of, kind of the customers also have accounts at Gazprom Bank. And if they have to open up a, a ruble account, then it would be the client who would be responsible for for the for the swap. Something like that is going on. And that was essentially the the, the critical issue is where does this thing happen and who's basically circumventing the sanctions. Now the Germans take the view it doesn't ultimately it doesn't matter as long as we get our gas. That's been the, the line of the government. And you know and the Russians say you know ultimately it doesn't ultimately matter to the Russians either because they will still get the money from Germany whether whether you know swapped into rubles from a German account or from a Russian account, it, in the end these things don't matter. Except that now Putin would would be able to to get the money, or at least he would involve others into his sort of schemes of uh, circumventing sanctions. Um, that's essentially sort of the bottom line. And uh, there may be other factors that I'm you know that I don't know because the technical small print of this entire cell hasn't hasn't been published. We do, we know that Scholz, when Scholz was listening to this sort of trade from Putin, how it all worked, he was completely confused. He said, I have to get my experts to, to check this out because I, you know, I don't know how this works. So, so I guess this is what the experts are doing right now is uh, trying to figure out, you know, and this is supposedly all you know, happening today. Today is April the 1st, maybe it's an April, April Fool's joke, uh, but uh, it's also happening today because this is the first day of the new, of the new regime, which I, you know, in, in reality, this will always take a few, few days for this to become really sort of, you know, everybody to know what they have to do. But that's essentially the, um, the situation. Yeah. And I, I think in, in that you also get at a really interesting point, which is that, you know, okay, so Putin has done this. There is now the system and stuff like this. You know, what was necessarily the need for all this, like, I guess, theater in the first place to do something that actually doesn't necessarily materially change much from where we were beforehand? You know, I guess there, there are kind of a number of different possible explanations for why there was such an enormous amount of noise over something that actually didn't end up kind of mm. needing to take up this much noise in the first place. Um, one, one of the most obvious being that Putin was just trying to basically see how far the EU was willing to go. You know, maybe he didn't really understand, okay, how, how serious are these guys going to be about this? And he was basically just trying to gauge how serious they were. I think you mentioned it before. It was like, try, you know, that's a trial balloon. Another possibility is that, a week ago, he might have thought that he needed to do this. Then in the subsequent week, realized that he didn't necessarily need to do it anymore, but there still needed to be some sort of option that made it look like he was going through with whatever he said that he was going to do in the first place. That's a possibility. Yeah. I, that's quite plausible that, that, it, that, it, that things looked differently a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Another thing that happened is that the German debate has since uh, changed. They said, I mean, oh my God, if they cut us off, we're going to be in a terrible state. Uh, it's very clear the Germans are not going to cut themselves off. That was very clear from this, from, from, from the debate of the last, it's, it's sort of certain Putin as a signal to see that, the Germans are not going to are not willing to take a two, three, or even six percent cut in GDP, which this might you know produce. I mean, this is another question. Another possibility is to say, I mean, we kind of stabilized the ruble exchange rate. I was thinking about the what what effect does it have for the exchange rate, and it looked really. I mean, the ruble was just going way down and depreciated massively. But since the, the investors and financial markets realized that 
the sanctions are not as they, they thought they would be. So they're not watertight. We're not going to uh, let go of the gas. So we're going to continue paying uh, Russia for the gas. The, the ruble uh, appreciated again. And that was also then a possibility for Putin to say, okay, that rate, even if, there, if it has to be a market rate, uh, I, I'm willing to exchange um, and do that. So I think it's, it's for me, it's another way of thinking, well, you have the military war in Ukraine, but there is an economic conflict brewing and and this whole thing about currencies using my currencies rather than you yours is a bit of of that category uh, we want it in rubles and for propaganda purposes uh, nationally this is what needs to happen whether or not there's a swap behind I don't think that really doesn't matter for Putin. Uh, it's really more the signal that he, that he can actually get and, and, and tell the Russians, uh, we got paid in rubles and not in euros. This is another way of saying, well, that's we're done with the West. Yeah, and and and, and anyway, he had he got an awful lot of airtime in everybody's you know televisions, and he he you know he certainly got the point across that that dollars and euros are now you know defaulting currencies that that obviously have lost the value, so that he needs to that Russia can only afford to be paid in hard currency, the ruble, <laughs> which uh, which is obviously not the way we look at this, but it's a it's an attempt. I think what 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 is now happening, and I think you Zana, you wrote about this today, is that uh, we have a situation where you know we are we're trying to decouple uh, russia off from the west that's very clear that's the purpose of these sanctions and you know politicians are saying this, we should look at it long term so the whole idea is to make ourselves independent of russian gas to massively reduce or completely eliminate russian gas oil and coal purchases and russia is kind of doing the same now uh, by trying to find new customers uh, and the, the relationship with china and india is getting closer uh, so we are possibly potentially looking at rival trading blocks in the in the global economy that trade with one another that still trade with one another china will still you know sell goods to us and we will sell to china but it's you know there will be less of a an interchange between the two blocks as there is today they're not sort of integrated in one global network which is splitting the network in two and you know the one is us the west and the other one is basically the BRICS, uh the BRICS and the old you know the old term the BRICS: brazil russia india china and south africa that was coined 20 years ago to denote the up and up and coming emerging economies there's nobody's emerging anymore they all emerged a long time ago but it's it was it was sort of synonymous for that sort of new non-western uh, world um, and there is an awful lot more to it than than those five countries and that will be a become an alternative trading block. You know, Zana, you wrote about what this might mean for the dollar as the leading global currency. Uh, yes, um, actually, it was a follow-up from um, an interview that Gita Kopinat, uh, the IMF first deputy managing director, gave to um, the uh, Financial Times. And she talked about that that the, the the sanctions and the way that the war is unfolding means that the international financial system is is going to see some more fragmentation in the markets. Uh, I mean, how, the, the, what you mentioned. I mean, what we can look at the ruble, but also the Chinese one uh, will play a bit bigger role. And it's not a new phenomenon. We have seen these things coming along uh, for the last twenty years. They if 
affect not only trade but also the reserve holdings of central banks. When I thought or when I thought about her comments, fragmentation of the systems and currency blocks emerging, uh, I remembered some uh, work I did together with Stefan Collignon um, some decades ago about currency blocks and how if we are having currency blocks and they're going to start to compete with each other, it politicizes a process that used to be in a hierarchical global system. I mean, the whole idea of having one currency is like a hierarchy, like Charles Kingsbury. This is an intrinsic feature of a monetary system and including the global finance structure. So now if we don't have that single currency or this, uh, the dollar who is dominating and, and was the, the sort of the currency of this by default, if we now have more blocks going on, and these will be used in political terms because then they compete for markets, they compete for interests that we have. And it goes along with what we actually see in terms of nationalization, kind of self autonomy. We all want to sort of define the, the frontiers, the sphere of influence new. And I think this goes along with the question of how we're going to use the currencies in, in our trade relationships. Yeah. And I think that when you start to kind of think about it in those terms, for me, what becomes the really interesting component is you might have the US on one side, China on another side, and then and then Russia kind of being, I guess, more or less associated with China. I think where it starts to get interesting for me are what are the kind of choices that some of the other countries in that position, like say Brazil or India or Indonesia or South Africa, what kind of choices do they start to make? especially in that kind of whole balance. If you have this kind of rivalry emerging, do they necessarily need to make a choice of who to go with? To what extent can they autonomize? I'm, I'm not really sure if any of those four countries could become autonomous necessarily anytime soon because of the way their economies are structured. But, you know, I think they would they would probably go with I mean, an issue for China in particular was being being made subject to sanctions, the American secondary sanctions that penalize anybody who, 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 who deals with either, you know, Russia or tries to undermine existing sanctions are extremely damaging to, to countries from outside the West. And they will naturally align with those who, who don't sanction them and who, with whom they can trade freely. Uh, so it depends very much on on how the West interacts with uh, with the other countries, on how we you know on how we use and abuse our sanctions mechanism. I think we are abusing it at the moment. I don't think we're using it to good purposes, as as we, you know, we said last week and the week before. Completely shocked about the central bank sanctions. I, you know, I don't think we thought this through, and that's what Susanna was just saying. And that that is that will accelerate the process of division by sequestering uh, funds of central banks. You know, the sequestering deposit. Custodian accounts, which we you know were considered to be completely safe, and so this is now a we're a different world now. Where basically, you know, a dollar account or euro account is not a safe, but as safe an asset as as you think it is. It is subject to political to political decisions, not even legal decisions or parliamentary decisions. But these are subject to to decisions of governments. That's a different world, and I think people are reassessing their holdings in in the United States. If you are a, you know, if you are the sovereign wealth fund of a of, of a of a country in 
uh, you know, of one of these countries that you mentioned, um, and you would assess: is this is, is it safe? You know, what happens if there's a U.S. president who is hostile to us? You know, we don't know what the future is. I mean, you don't have to be a, a nasty fascist dictator to think that you might just be, you know, you you might just hold a certain political view, maybe on the left, and you might find that someone on the right gets into power in the United States and who targets you as their as the number one enemy, or it could be the other way around. Um, but in any case. You, you're now having to judge the politics of the United States and Europe in your decision on whether you're whether it is safe to invest your surpluses, your you know your your counter account revenues in, in in another country. At the moment, you don't have that much choice. I mean, this is not going to none of this is happening in the short term. The U.S. Treasury market is the dominant market for reserve assets. That's not going to you know be shifting to the euros or where the Chinese don't have the infrastructure for this in place at all. But we're talking, and I think what Zona you were talking about, these were these are secular shifts. These are shifts that will take you know, a couple of decades or something. That's sort of the time frame we're looking at. And is that, is that the way to think about this? Or yeah, definitely. And I think it's not only central banks. Um, I mean, the other story I had today is a concept actually from Lizzie Cole. It was really about how how will companies uh, assess the new geopolitical environment and how do they do their uh, their markets and supply chains um, in, an, in an environment where we have more inflation uh, as a cause of Russian invasion. Um, also, the geopolitical um, move where companies left Russia as part of uh, this whole well, anticipation of further sanctions, but also as a sort of reputational um, move out of Russia. Will they do the same if China, for example, uh, goes after Taiwan? Uh, once we set a precedence, uh, the question is how how is the logic now applying uh, in, in in the rest of it, and how how does it affect the contracts that people have with their suppliers? Is it a force majeure thing that they're going to trigger? Uh, no, if if that's the case, then you actually break the contracts. That's sort of the whole institutional setup of legal legal setup that we sort of used to work within all of a sudden becomes very a bit more shaky. And um, as um, Jean-Marc was saying, well, we might actually go back to the whole times like 1970s and live in this whole new world of uncertainty where we have to make very fast decisions not knowing what the political consequences will be. Um, there is also some cloud and, and some, uh, yeah, where political parties can actually come up with um, with an agenda to benefit from this the, these shifts, geopolitical shifts. Yeah, well, on, on that point of parties and, you know, certain political groups benefiting from these geopolitical shifts, I think that's certainly one thing that you would see in this kind of eventuality is governments being expected to take a much more, I don't know, kind of, protective or backstopping role in the entire thing for citizens. You know, as you kind of get this external uncertainty, I think what you'd expect to have is kind of some some sort of, I guess, demand, whether spoken or unspoken from citizens, that governments have to do more to shield them from the risks that these sorts of situations present. How are you as an individual supposed to kind of 
plan. I don't know your savings or, you know, your debts or whatever in the long term. if you have no idea how these things are going to turn out and the world is so uncertain. Yeah. I think this is where, where our strategy goes wrong. You know, our ability to shield people from risks during the pandemic, we went to quite extreme measures, fiscal measures, and we saw the fiscal policies in the United States, the massive, the massive stimulus, which was one of the drivers of inflation, of global inflation, because we created uh, an imbalance between demand and supply. Uh, if you continue to do this, we will create massive, massive distortions. And we should also consider the other fact uh, that we're still dependent on China. I wrote this morning about our dependency on China for various raw materials and also Russia. I mean, Russia and China is a pretty powerful alliance, not in the sense that they, you know, yes, we are running the global financial market. We are clearly running the, the global multilateral system, considering that we've kicked out Russia pretty much out of anything from, you know, various sports facilities all the way down to the Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, we've basically, you know, we, we're running the whole thing, but they have the rare earth, they have a lot of gas and they have a lot of oil. Um, the rare earths are completely necessary for production of um you know, of electrical vehicles and wind turbines. And there's all these industry that we are now considering to be part of our industrial strategy now that our old industrial strategy is breaking down. And here's Germany, here's Germany trying to plaster 2% of its land with wind turbines. And now, you know, we are realizing we're dependent on, on Chinese rare earths for the production of the, of the turbines. Um, so the idea of two competing systems, I think is likely now. I think we are, we basically set ourselves on this course. I'm not sure this is in the Western interest. I don't think we, as I keep saying, I don't think we thought this through. I thought we, when we had the sanctions, we went for the, what's the least painful thing to us? The central bank sanctions, because it didn't hurt us in the short run. Um, and various, you know, bans on Gucci bags, sales and whatever we could, we could come up with, would sounded pretty, you know, it would impress the crowd on Twitter. But ultimately, we didn't really think through a strategy here. And as I saw sort of a, a nice way of putting it by Fraser Nelson today in the Daily Telegraph, who says that, you know, Russia might lose the war, but they might win the peace. Uh, so a very British way of, you know, this is another sort of Second World War uh, remembrance, but it's basically, you know, we have to be careful that this might not happen. Uh, and I think the, the, the West and I, you know, it's quite positive, you know, it doesn't look like that Russia can win this war in any way that one would, would categorize this. It, this war might continue for a very long time, but it's, it's far from clear that we're going to cripple the Russian economy and we're going to smoke them out and all this thing. I just don't see this happening. And I think all the, whatever we see, how the West reacts, now the divisions are coming up again in the European Union. We are defaulting basically back to this normal status quo where Germany is pushing its exports and where, you know, where Poland is pushing its interests, its, its sort of geopolitical interests and in, in where, where it sits, where the Baltic states are trying to push for action against Russia, where Germany and Italy are pushing against this and where the Americans are basically leaving us to, to quarrel about this and, you know, getting on with life and focusing on other issues. That is my fear. And in the meantime, we will, you know, people will realize what the, what the cost of those sanctions uh, will be to us uh, in the long run, which is basically starting right now. Yeah, definitely inflation. I mean, we have 4.5% inflation now in France. We have, I think, how much is it? 8% in Germany. 10%. It's just today, it just came out. So it was over 7% in the euro area. Yeah, 7% in euro area, 10% in Spain. Uh, here in Italy, I talk to people, everything is just going up. Um, it hits, uh, it, it reaches such levels that cannot actually, the government cannot actually 
have any ways of compensating people for the increase in prices. And we also see that wages are not going up the same way. So we will have increased kind of real, real world poverty um, coming up um, our ways. And um, with this comes more tensions in our societies as well. Again, it's a little bit of a parallel to the 1970s. We do have some indexations in our uh, systems. We have some minimum wages that are linked to inflation. So we're going to jump. But for many of the wages, they don't. I mean, uh, one of the tragic things is that uh, the French elections, all the candidates were just uh, campaigning on this kind of modern version of a of an economy, uh, talking about teleworking and uh, uh, circular economies, etc. And now we find ourselves in this old world, talking about inflation, talking about wars, and, uh, and seem to be not able to have any better remedy to, to deal with this uh, than we were last century. I mean, people are making this comparison with the 70s. I think it's worse than the 70s because in the 70s, wages were indexed. So, you know, trade unions managed to, to get very generous wage increases to compensate for it. We had wage price spirals that we don't have that now. We have other methods, me- mechanisms for inflation, but the 70s were great. There was no, you know, it was a macroeconomic instability, but there was not a poverty problem. I mean, I, I do remember a little bit of Britain in the 70s and certainly Germany in the 70s. These were sort of the, the feeling of, in many respects, of the good old days. Uh, there were, you know, lots of problems in the British economy in terms of productivity, and you know, the winter of discontent happened later, and there was obviously a whole, you know, strikes and people, people remember rationing. We had all these things. This was was happening in the in the end, but there wasn't this this um, you know there was sort of symmetric poverty. You know, electricity rationing means we all we all we all freeze a little bit, but it doesn't mean that I get poor and my neighbor gets richer. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we're going to sort of fall into a, a massive social social hole, uh, which is now happening. It's not only happening. I mean, it's happening. Jack, you were writing about the UK today. Oh There's God! A- I mean, <laughs> the UK. Uh, I mean, I I don't know. Reading reading the OBR report from from last week was like reading Ragnarok. It was you know the Book of Revelation. Relations. It's yeah. It's gonna it's gonna be a particular problem here in the UK, where you know, and this is what I was writing about compared to a lot of other um, major European economies. Our social safety net is pretty degraded at this point. So, I mean, number one, that raises the question of you know, to what extent can can you really support people because you also have to pay to like fix a multiplicity of broken social services. Um, and then number two, the safety nets that people have to fall back on are not really there. Like, I mean, you know, I think this is a point that anybody who has to live on, you know, like low income benefits would tell you in the UK that it's virtually impossible to do so. Yeah. I think what we're seeing, I'm, my views are quite radical. I think central banks have failed. Central banks have, have overreacted to the global financial crisis with massive, you know, massive amount of QE, which increased inequality. And now they are failing to react to this, which increases inequality further by pushing the poor into 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 absolute, absolute abject poverty. There's no way governments can can compensate for that. There are things we can do on the margin, like you know, prevent electricity spikes. We can. These are useful things governments do, and to make sure that that electricity bills going to rise tenfold or so. That that that's that's that they can do. They cannot protect people from inflation. The central bank can do that. And it didn't. And, you know, obviously the central bank is not responsible for 
an oil price spike. Clearly, the right policy is not to, to kind of ignore it, but it cannot ignore the sequential effects that we've had. We started off with a, with a massive stimulus program that basically made sure that the aggregate demand in the global economy exceeded aggregate supply. Given that aggregate supply was constrained, uh, we actually pushed demand further. Then we've had, obviously, various shocks, the Russia invasion of Ukraine uh, being, being, being the latest. Um, but we also have other structural shocks that are on top of this demographic graphic shifts that are happening that were completely foreseen. This is not uh, not uh, not a new information that we are now you know getting older that that we are demanding services that we weren't demanding before uh that there is shortage of labor in those services in the uk you've just left left the left the eu so you have many fewer immigrant uh, laborers uh, here to provide services in the catering sector and in the in the, the care sector and the hospital sector so you're getting you know they're pushing up the wages this is now this is now going to going to happen in some in some areas but not in all areas and this this is where, where things will, will go wrong. And, and central banks, especially the Bank of England, which seems to be particularly spineless, uh, you know, they have not, you know, they, they you know, their, their signaling is awful. We, we now expect inflation to be double digits. And uh, there is no intention to, you know, I, I think they're not, they've given up on the 2% inflation target. I think that they, if, they, if they're lucky that might, it might fall back by itself. But history has shown that that doesn't happen like that, that people will eventually find ways to compensate, compensate either by voting in a, in a, in a radical government. And eventually these sort of things, you know, I also think in Germany, people are wondering why the German wages are not reacting. Uh, the German wages are not reacting because we had COVID, we had a lot of special situations. But don't think for a minute that the German wages are not going to react to 10% inflation. Uh, they will, that might take a year, it might take two, but you know, but if they react, they will be they'll be absolutely awful. Uh, yeah. you, know, but you might easily see IG Metall going out and say, we're gonna, we want 20%. And if we don't get 20%, we're gonna, we're gonna wreck the entire economy. Uh, mm-hmm. it would be actually the rational thing to do uh for them to do this. And then suddenly you have then you have your wage, you know, your wage price spiral that you're now saying, oh home doesn't happen now. Yeah, well, I think in the UK where the big issue is going to come, and I don't think this is something the government or anybody else has really realized is with civil service, because um, their pay rises are indexed way below inflation. So, mm-hmm. you know, even in comparison to what you would get on the market, a lot of those people are frankly just going to leave. And it will become a matter of, well, how, how can you run a state when a bunch of your civil servants resign because the pay isn't anywhere near keeping up with, you know, actual kind of, you know, cost of living increases. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, so we're going to be in a, in a very rocky scenario. So we're having short-term, short-term problems with um, inflation uh, and, you know, long-term issues with a world divided, a new iron curtain. Uh, and they are two inter, you know, they, they feed each other because one of the things globalization did was to, Depress global uh, prices through through free movement of labor, free movement of capital, free movement of goods. Now that free, you know we've just constrained free movement of capital through our sanctions, free movement of goods through our sanctions, free movement of labor has been curtailed by the pandemic and Brexit and other other factors. That's generally less today in the glo- in the whole world and you know anti-immigration policies in the United States and various other countries. So we are far less open to immigration than we were uh, five or six years ago. Uh, so the so the world is now moving towards a scenario that is very conducive to higher inflation. 
Um, yeah, I mean, in France, we also see kind of um, uh, Macron was very good at uh, holding back or holding off these uh, Gilets jaunes, any kind of um, remembrance of Gilets jaunes protests. Uh, so he, he was compensating an oil price um, by cutting the prices on, uh, in petrol stations, uh, also electricity, supporting the electricity bills. But the question is, how long can he afford to do so? And also, when, you, when it comes to industries, I mean, we wrote about it and Jackie wrote about it as well. Aquaculture depends on a lot of uh, materials coming from Russia. And, uh, once you start saying yes to one sector, then of course the other sector said, well, what about us? Uh, we need some support too. And yes, we have a different world. It's it's not, I mean, central banks might be easier for them to control demand, to push um, inflations, but it's not so easy for them actually to control supply side um, inflation. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. So it is a very different world. Um, and it is much more difficult to, to, to compensate for that, either from the monetary or for the fiscal side, at least for a longer period of time, especially on, on the end of uh, two years of pandemic and where we try to push everyone along and having several furloughs schemes uh, financed by, by government actions. So, yeah, um, this, this was probably will have some lasting uh, shifts in the societies in the UK. France and all over uh, here in Italy as well. So we were going to see more pushes that not only comes from the wage wage spirals, uh, but also from the wider public. And therefore, I mean, we would need immigration, actually. We would need some more immigration if we really are serious about becoming autonomous in several services. We would need much more immigration, especially in countries like Germany, where the population is not growing enough to replace, and, and so the workforce is actually shrinking. So all this would mean uh, rather more than less people coming into our countries. And on this note, I think we will end today's um, podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next week.